I think it's fair to say that if you ask 10 jazz musicians for a definition of the music they play, you'll get at least 11 answers. Definitions are not particularly useful when it comes to creativity, but for our purposes today, maybe we can settle on the idea that jazz is not so much a kind of music as it is a way of traveling. And it's a seductive way of traveling, one that attracts people who don't necessarily agree with the kinds of limitations that others would accept, including the limitations or constraints of the very instruments that they play. Over the years here, I've talked on this podcast to musicians who have developed a way to play improvised music on non-traditional instruments. People like harmonica virtuoso Howard Levy, steel drummer Andy Norell, and saxophonist Ben Wendell, whose most recent record features his bassoon playing. When it comes to instruments that are not easily designed for improvising soloists, there is perhaps none more difficult to handle than the harp. And when it comes to contemporary jazz harpists, there is perhaps none more influential in this moment than Brandy Younger. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. From the very beginning, as a young music student growing up on Long Island, Brandy Younger was towing the line between her classical orchestral musical education and the hip-hop, soul, and pop music that she grew up loving. She spent her early years musically code-switching, trying to figure out how to make sense of her sensibilities. Her early music teachers may not have recognized the potential for the harp in contemporary pop music, but for those who listened closely to the samples on records by Jay-Z, Pete Rock, The Far Side, Jay Dilla, or Common, it was clear that the sound of the harp had become part of the language of modern music. Younger didn't know it at the time, but many of the harp samples that she was hearing on those early hip-hop records featured two African-American women who, like her, learned to thrive beyond their perceived limitations. They were Dorothy Ashby and Alice Coltrane. Eventually, both Ashby and Coltrane would become two of her biggest influences. But unlike Dorothy Ashby and Alice Coltrane, Brandy Younger was raised with the sounds of the harp woven into contemporary urban and popular music. So when, as a college student, she started getting invited to recording sessions, she realized that there was a place for her. Brandy eventually made history as the first black female solo artist to be nominated for a Grammy for Best Instrumental Composition in 2021. That was for Beautiful is Black from her album Somewhere Different. She's also worked with the likes of Beyonce, John Legend, Drake, and Lauryn Hill, as well as jazz artists including Christian McBride, Kat Edmondson, Marcus Strickland, Casa Overall, Makaya McRaven, all of whom have been featured on this podcast, by the way, and Ravi Coltrane, son of Alice Coltrane. On her latest album, Brand New Life, Brandy honors Dorothy Ashby and enlists icons of hip-hop and R&B, including Pete Rock, Moo Moo Fresh, and Michelle Indigio Cello. The album was produced by Makaya McRaven. We spoke recently about her journey from orchestra girl to emerging icon, the challenges of playing the harp in a contemporary context, even something as simple as how to amplify the thing on stage, and why she's done running from the harp police and the jazz police too. Third-story.com is your place to sign up, subscribe, and visit the full archive. Hundreds of conversations, including the aforementioned episodes with Howard Levy, Andy Norell, Ben Wendell, Christian McBride, Kat Edmondson, Casa Overall, and Makaya McRaven. We are made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to check out all their award-winning content. And finally, patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is the place to arpeggiate your appreciation for this project. Here's me and Brandy Younger talking it down on Zoom last month. So I, we have a lot to talk about. I guess for starters, we can work backwards and just talk about your new record. That's sort of the occasion for us to talk. And I think it maybe gives us an opportunity to explore your whole story because you've really made an effort in talking about this record 
to name Dorothy Ashby, to name one of your main influences on the harp as you explain the background of this project. I always say this, every performance always sort of gives a nod to Alice Coltrane and Dorothy Ashby. And I did that, I've done that on purpose for my whole, since I started working with a band, just because I really felt like they were not celebrated. Their music wasn't celebrated in a way that I thought it should have been, especially as a, as a harpist. I'm like, oh my gosh, why aren't more people paying attention to this great harp stuff happening? Harp nerd, you know. But with the recording, I've recorded a couple Alice Coltrane tunes and a couple Dorothy Ashby tunes, but a few albums ago I did Wax and Wayne, which was mostly Dorothy Ashby's music. Maybe there are two originals on there. But conceptually, it was like one very specific concept sound that we had going into that particular project. So I think what's a little bit different this go round is that I am just, you know, a little bit later in my career growth, my harp growth. Because remember, I started an orchestra. <laughs> I started an orchestra. So, so my, my musical growth is, it's a little weird. I mean, it's a little different. And I always did pop sessions mm. and I was always doing other things, but I was never really truly combining my world. It was like, I felt like I had a day life and I had a nightlife. So I kind of just started to fuse my world together, which was more uniquely me. I'm not one or the other, but sort of a combination of things. So when putting this record together or thinking about it, I wanted to do it for like the past three years. And I wanted to, you know, I recorded some of Dorothy Ashby's music that hadn't previously been recorded. You know, she had, she had these theater, what do you call them? Plays. She had a theater company in Detroit called the Ashby Players. Hmm. And she would write all the music for those plays. And some of the music she would recycle for her recordings, like there's a play called The Game and the song Games from Afro Harping, it's the same song. So there were a couple tunes that she would recycle, but you know, a lot of these pieces weren't on her recordings. And I was like, wouldn't it be a great idea to record some of this music in my voice? I had mentioned to Micaiah a while back that I wanted to do something with her music. And he was like, oh, can you make sure I'm a part of it? And I was like, yeah, of course, at the time, I wasn't anticipating him after having to produce the whole record. So that turned into that, like, hey, could you just do everything? Mm -hmm. um, 
So in working on this, you know, because I've known Makai a long time since like undergrad and started working with his band really in 2018. So there is a strong familiarity there. And then with Rashawn Carter, he's been playing with me for years, best of friends. The familiarity of being able to sit down with folks that you know, that you Mm. trust, you don't have to explain every little thing. It kind of just, a lot of it happens organically. Um, That, I think, enabled us to kind of just get to where the music got. You know, some of it read through like a traditional standard and we're like, okay, Makai's like, well, let's try this, do that. Um, a couple of the tunes, one of my originals, literally, it just read down. I didn't say anything. It just happened. And I was like, whoa, that doesn't happen often in life, which is really exciting. I don't really mean to give you such a long answer. I love it. And if you have stuff to say, I want to hear you say it. So I'm happy to hear your answer. You have full permission to shut me down. <laughs> so many questions actually come out of that wonderful long answer. All the way back to the way you framed this record as being a little bit different because you allowed yourself to bring in your day life and your nightlife, your two worlds. Could you describe how you see those worlds as different or what the tension was between them? Maybe the, the more contemporary side and the more classic side? Or I mean, h- how did you feel that divide? The problem was self-imposed, for sure. But, you know, when I was younger, it really came about because, you know, like your friends in school, they're not interested in like the instrument you're playing. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to hear whatever's on the radio. And then but also my parents. Right. They want to play something somebody knows. I had to learn to read the room, like play for the audience. I do these like competitions at home for Omega Sci-Fi, which is a black fraternity. Mm. So I would like play Stevie Wonder for them. But then I do the harp the harp society things. And I'm playing like traditional French harp music, you know, sort of this being pulled in different directions because of, because of who I was culturally, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I've always had an interest in playing pop though. I always wanted to play what I heard on the radio and my teacher, my first teacher, she's a gem. I would like show up with cassette tapes. That makes me sound old CDs. I'd show up to lessons with CDs of whatever I wanted to play. And as long as I did what I was assigned, she would write out these little lead sheets. So I guess that's how I figured out how to read a lead sheet Mm because they don't teach you that in the conservatory, Mm. you know? I would just want to play like whatever, I don't know, what's Tony Braxton singing right now? You know, I just wanted to play whatever I heard. So she would help me out by doing, writing me little lead sheets. So I was always sort of like doing that at home. But then outside... I was doing the orchestra stuff, doing the chamber stuff. And then even through college, those worlds continued parallel to each other. Mm-hmm. Never, it was almost as if, you know, there's uh, oftentimes there was this stigma with classical musicians not playing anything but classical music. At the same time, there was a stigma with jazz musicians and 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 pop. You know what I mean? Like classical and jazz musicians, they were like anti-pop. And I was like bubblegum, right, at home. I'm like bubblegumming it. And I had no shame at home. Ah, so. <laughs> so like you didn't want to admit it. You didn't want to even admit it outside of the home to your classical or your musician friends that this is what you like, that what you listen to at home. I mean, I would admit it, but it would be on a 
it would just be on a different level. I remember, so there, there's this bassist, um, Dimitri, he plays with Usher. He's on tour with Usher right now. They're doing the Vegas residency. Mm-hmm. And he reminds me to this day that in undergrad, he didn't go to my college, but he lived in Connecticut mm-hmm. where I went to school. And he, he was like, remember you were in the hallway singing Justin Timberlake? And I'm like, absolutely. I was dancing and singing Justin Timberlake. Like that was part of my personality. Mm-hmm. So it was like, that was my personality socially. But then I'd like go to chamber music and be real serious. But in real life, I would have loved to play it on a Justin Timberlake track, you know? And so I started after college or toward the end of college, you know, I would I would play on these like producers tracks, like random producers that were like recording in their mom's basement. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got a real like top 40 session, I was like ready. And it was that was for a bad boy session. Cassie, who you probably know is Diddy's ex-girlfriend at this point. But Ryan Mm -hmm. Leslie was producing her record. And that was my first top 40 recording. From then, I did plenty of other. I did, you know, I worked with Common, lots of people. But then still, the world, they weren't combining for two reasons. One, Hmm. I wasn't actively combining them. This was like probably the age of MySpace music. Laugh at me. Ha ha ha. I know. MySpace music. Listen, however old you make yourself sound, just put seven years on top of it. And that's where I am. So you're not going to feel old to me at all. But remember, MySpace music was like, that was the thing. (laughs) (laughs) That was the thing. But I also feel like people weren't as accepting as they are now of like smushing everything together. But the smush was always my thing. I mean, as the smush was naturally me and it was hard to be me Mm -hmm. when the smush wasn't cute. So what was it like when you went into those bigger pop sessions? What were they asking you to do? Were were there written parts? Would they ask you to freestyle, improvise? Like, how do they communicate what they wanted to you? Okay, so that's the thing. (laughs) Maybe, okay, oh my gosh. This is the thing. There were never any written parts. And coming from an orchestral background, I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, like, 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 hey, I'm not a church player. I need to read some music. Right. My ear is not just picking that up. Mm-hmm. So if the sessions were like, oh, hey, I want it to. Um, and they weren't really sending you things ahead of time. That's the thing. Now they will send you. This is what we want to record over or whatever. So I could sit with it for a minute. But the sit with for a minute wasn't a thing before. Mm-hmm. So I would say, like, well, what is it that you're recording? Is it original? Is it a sample? A lot of times it mimicked a sample. So if it mimicked a sample, then I could go ahead and listen to whatever the original song was and at least have an idea or have a clue, which helped me out. I would do whatever I could do to help myself out and to not play myself all the way. I do think that now a lot of times you've got you've got trained musicians in a lot of these sessions. Yeah. So the gap, there's a bridge between the gap, which is helpful. Also, my ear has gotten stronger than it used to be. So it's a combo of those things. But, but yeah. You describe your two worlds as being the sort of the classical world where it's like, okay, put some paper in front of me and I'll read it. Or the sort of pop world that you were listening to. But the space that you live in today is, I think, largely defined as being 
in the jazz space and in a space where there's improvisation and sort of neither one nor the other. Like, what happened that opened that world up to you also? So back in high school, and, and I, I think back, like, I do think that having a, a music program in school was mm. maybe all the difference. Elementary school, junior high school, and high school. And I would say high school was the most impactful because I did play the flute. I didn't play harp in school, really. I mean, I did a little bit later, maybe my last year, the school rented a harp. But I primarily played in marching band. And our high school marching band was like modeled after the historically black colleges. It was military style, Mm. black college military style marching band. So we're playing Earth, Wind and Fire. We're playing George Benson. You know, so we're playing like, Black, funk, R&B type stuff. So when I say pop, I don't just mean Justin Timberlake. I'm really talking about the oldies, which have a completely different sound than the bubblegum, right? So in band, we were playing funk, R&B, and we were playing jazz. And then we also had a separate jazz band. And yes, I got thrown from flute to trombone, of all things. Don't laugh at me. So in marching band, in jazz band, in symphonic band, I'm playing trombone, right? So I I have the harp at home where I'm just doing what I said, right? I'm doing my classical studies. I'm a little pop, whatever. And I wanted to bring the harp into what we were doing in band. But I mean, I can't do anything in marching band. So I would start to bring the harp to school. And we, you know, we all have to play Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder. That horn line in Sir Duke was like our final every after every semester. We all had to play it up to tempo. I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to figure this stuff out on harp. Mm-hmm. And my teacher, you know, he's like, well, let's do these, the Jamie Amersoll play-alongs. Maybe you could do one of these. Here's a Duke Ellington book. And I'm sitting down and I'm like, okay, I'm going to play Don't Get Around much anymore. And then I quickly realized how my pedals are going to become an issue yeah. for me while I'm sitting here trying to play Don't Get Around much anymore and not completely understanding the mechanics of my instrument. Does the instrument accommodate it? I mean, I was actually listening to some early Dorothy records earlier today and listening to how she developed a a way that she was bending and doing things to mimic other instruments. And I thought, I wonder if the harp really isn't actually designed to make some of these sounds naturally. Whoever made this harp is like, you're going to play in one key. Yeah. I mean, really, you're going to play in one key at a time. So when the harp was advanced to what we have today with pedals, because original harps, they had like four or five strings. It was like David, you know, hmm. and before David, you know. So what we have now with the seven pedals, it gives us the option to play 
chromatically. But that is not without mm-hmm. some obstacles involved. So there are certain things that are more accessible than others, like Giant Steps is not cute on the heart, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. because of its harmonic movement. Some harmonic movements are more feasible just because of the placement of the pedals. Mm-hmm. So that was something I didn't understand because till then I was reading. And when I say reading, lots of chromatic music, but everything is prepared. So I know when I get to this beat, I'm moving B and E natural. When I move to this beat, I'm moving A natural and D natural. Everything is prepared. So you practice it in. Mm -hmm. You practice it in and everything is by rote. Mm -hmm. With the pop stuff, it was me just figuring out and doing what I could do. So now with this, I'm like, OMG, we got lots of little half step things going on. What am I going to do? So on my Hmm. own, I would try to like work out Stevie Wonder ribbon in the sky. I was on a roll till it modulated um, and work out these Duke Ellington tunes. And then like my parents gave me this Alice Coltrane CD in the first track. It was remember those priceless jazz compilations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That first rec, the first track on it was Blue Nile. And I was like, oh, holy smokes. What's this? And this sounds so cool. And what the heck is she doing with those glissandos? And how is this blues? And how is this happening? And this sounds so cool. Let me try this out. I went to college to study everything. I studied traditional classical music and I also studied music business, but I met Nat Reeves on my audition day. And I met, um, once school started, I met Jackie McLean. And the whole jazz department at the art school was like, oh my gosh, come to my classes, Mm -hmm. come and just sit in. So I would always go, I just didn't play. So I would sort of just sit in the classes and, and absorb, absorb and learn and learn and learn by watching. But I was way too embarrassed to ever get my behind out there and embarrass myself. I got to have some lessons with Nat Reeves one on one, which was super, super helpful in just figuring things out without feeling completely humiliated in front of everyone, you know, and, and just that those years in undergrad when I would just, you know, work things out with my friends and colleagues standards, you know, I would just write, I would write it out mm-hmm. in manuscript paper to try to just figure out the mechanics. And that's really how I started to work through tunes, like mm-hmm. standards. So that's when I really got, you know, into it and could ask people questions and get some answers, you know? I love the idea of that generosity from everybody in the jazz department where they were saying, come around, come around, come sit in, come take the class, whatever. It speaks to really a sense of inclusion in that community. But I just wonder, considering you felt like such an outsider, what do you think they recognized in you that they wanted to support? Why was Jackie so generous to you? It could have been a combination of things. One, um, this Black girl in the conservatory and one of few. Mm -hmm. Two, I was interested in this music. Three, I played the harp. (laughs) All right. So, I mean, no one's ever asked me that question before, but that's what comes to mind 
immediately when you ask that, you know, I just think those three things. And, and I was, I was genuinely curious. And by this time I was already obsessed with Alice Coltrane yeah, and what she was doing and the sound that she was creating, not just with the harp, but that whole recording, I was just like the first two tracks I think is what made me break the disc, you know, the disc broke and it was Blue Nile, and then it was Taria and Ramakrishna. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember what came after it because I broke the it's disc. Broken, yeah. To to this day, it was two of my favorite favorite of hers favorites. I think the idea of representation in your whole experience is so crucial. You kind of have taken on the mantle of representing a number of things throughout your career, starting even, it sounds like, in high school or in college by being this rare breed who kind of stands out in the crowd. Yeah, but it's it's incredibly isolating. (laughs) As a kid and as an adult, it's incredibly isolating because... When you don't have living examples, it wasn't until I discovered Mm. Dorothy Ashby was Dorothy Ashby and started to dig into her music. And I'm like, oh, she's literally playing pop music of the time. It's not pop now, but she's playing pop tunes. She's not just playing jazz. She's playing jazz. She's playing traditional Jewish Mm. melodies. She's playing the latest soundtrack from these movies. Mm. And I was just like, OMG, this is like exactly what I have been like in my living room, just for my parents Mm. trying to do just for personal fulfillment. And I never even thought I would have a career like this. I was going to college for the scholarship. Mm. I was just trying to please myself playing more than the orchestral music. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dorothy was probably she the maybe the most sampled harpist. I mean, I feel like she did make a lot of records that ended up showing up in hip hop and in popular music when we were younger. When we heard her, we just didn't know it. Exactly. I mean, so like the the records, most of the records that she did with on cadet with Richard Evans, those are the real super funky ones. Surprise, surprise. The funky ones, those are the ones that were probably sampled the heaviest. Mm-hmm. She, let's see, she died, what, just about, just about 10 years before, before hip hop mm-hmm. started sampling that, you know? And I always think about like, would she have embraced that if she was alive? And I, I think she would have just judging from what she's done and judging from what she wanted to do. And when I say what she wanted to do in the archives, there are, there are letters that she would write to record labels that were proposing album concepts like this is what I want to do this is my idea this is my vision that was way I think way ahead of her time Mm -hmm. so yeah I think that she was forward thinking that that she would have embraced hip-hop I think but I'm also biased I'm I'm a New Yorker so considering Alice Coltrane was such a revolutionary you know experience for you eventually you befriended Ravi and worked with him in many ways in honoring Alice. So tell me about that relationship and what that meant to you. So that actually began, um, so she passed away in 07. And you want the real story? Please. <laughs> I had seen him like a year or so prior at Caramore. 
I was backstage. I was just hanging. And I go, oh, my gosh, it's Robbie Coltrane. I would love to meet him, but he doesn't look friendly. Mm. So I didn't say anything. But I'm also, even though I'm talkative, I'm also socially awkward. Mm -hmm. Like, bring me to a party and I'll be in the corner. Mm -hmm. Even though I talk a lot. So Mm -hmm. it's weird. So whatever. I didn't say anything. I don't like walking up to people. Sure. But then I sent him a message on MySpace like, hey, Sawyer Caramore is great. Hope to meet you. He didn't answer the message. And then one day I'm in grad school and I get a message from him. It's a reply to that message. This is well beyond a year later where he asked me to play for his mom's memorial and then goes, sorry, we didn't get to meet at Caramore. And I'm like, did you just answer that message from like a century ago? I mean, that's what I'm saying in the back of my head. But that is how I was invited to participate in the memorial. And I was really, really nervous because even though my head and my ears knew Alice Coltrane's music, I actually had never played it Mm -hmm. up until that memorial. I was really, really nervous. I was really young. This was maybe my first year of grad school, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking. And I remember showing up to the rehearsal at the at the cathedral and I think I brought my parents like we're on that level. You know what I'm saying? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. (laughs) Right. I think I got my parents with me and I had never, I don't think I had ever been to St. John divine. And if I had been, I had never played there before. So that was also intimidating. Mm -hmm. So it's the whole choir from her ashram, Reggie Workman, Cecil Mc. Charlie Hayden, Jerry Allen, Jeff Tane Watts, Jack DeJanet, Rashid Ali, mm. Steve Wilson. It was a lot for me. Okay. <laughs> but that memorial, so I think the, the memorial was the next day, the service. But that was the first time that I met him. And then after that, we recorded for his next album, Blending mm. Times. And we just did a trio version with Charlie Hayden and Ravi and me um, on Charlie Hayden's original Forteria that he first recorded with Alice Coltrane. You know, Ravi kept pointing out, Charlie hasn't recorded this with another harpist since my mom. You know, he kept saying that, he kept saying that. But over the years, I always referred to both Ravi and Antoine Roney as like my major, major mentors. Mm. Because just during that time and in, in trying to learn and really dig into the music and my playing was evolving in those sessions with Ravi. And, and in subsequent rehearsals for the festivals that were forthcoming, I remember saying things like, how do you want me to play this? How do you want me to play that? How do you want me to do this? And he would say, well, you know, if you could maybe combine elements of my mom's playing, Dorothy Ashby's mm. playing, and Carlos Salzedo, which meant my mom's playing more spiritual, Dorothy Ashby more jazz, and then Carlos Salzedo, classical. 
if you can kind of combine these elements, I think that's the sound that, that I'd like to hear. And that actually shaped, mm. that actually shaped my sound, my playing. Cause I, I need a directive. Mm. I'm used to, to parents telling me like, do this, do that. I need a directive. So if you can give me a directive, I can at least have something in mind to work towards. So over the years, it's like, okay, I love these glisses that Alice Coltrane's doing. How can I try to get the sound without doing glissandos? Oh, let me speed up my arpeggios. You know what I mean? Like it, it was really an exploration for me to just start to develop my sound. There are so few references that you're describing. Like once you reach a certain point on the instrument and of being established to a certain degree, that you start to feel, I wonder, I'm asking, a kind of responsibility, like you're almost like a custodian for the instrument, that you become, you know, potentially a reference for the next generation, but also just that it's a lot. I mean, you already said it's isolating as it is, but do you feel that weight? Do you feel that responsibility? I try not to think of it because then it'll make me feel either, like it'll make me feel some kind of pressure to do things a certain way. So I don't think about it. And then... I turn around and someone's playing one of my tunes mm. and I'm like, holy smokes. Okay. Let me make sure I do that better next time, yeah. you know, because it's flattering when someone has transcribed you, yeah. you know, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I made a mistake there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Thank you for transcribing me so I can remember what not to do next time. I want to fix yes, that up a little bit. Yes. Yes. Or did I do that? You know, yeah. because if I thought about it all the time, I don't think I would do anything. Yeah. Because I'd be stuck in what I was stuck in before, just sort of not feeling comfortable. I would have stayed stuck in my, in the hole I was in before where I was too, not embarrassed, but not confident enough to even put it out there. Because then you're like afraid of like the harp police are going to come after you for this and the jazz police are mm. going to come after you for that. Like yeah. that pressure is real. And I was like, whatever you Having good mentors is really, really, really helpful when you're just younger and trying to just figure figure your musical life out, mm -hmm. which I think we'll, I'll be figuring it out forever. But also my very first recording, Prelude, I recorded it as a demo. And I remember texting Casey Benjamin like, I got this demo. You want to hear it? And then he's like, Brandy, Andre 3000 said the golden rule, don't make demos, make records. So I put that out never intending to put it out. And it was less than perfect. I feel like that was probably the beginning days of Bandcamp. So I put it out on Bandcamp and just developed such a wonderful community of other people on Bandcamp. I was like, this is so much fun, yeah. you know, and and getting to play your music and to share it with people and people writing you notes about it. It was really, really cute. It was like its own little social media platform. You graduated from MySpace to Bandcamp in that moment, I guess. Uh, yeah, that was my graduation. Yeah. 
it sounds like actually, in a way, your graduation was at Alice Coltrane's memorial. I mean, you were being welcomed into this space. All those major artists that you describe being there, they made space for you. It kind of feels like they were saying, like, welcome. You know, we we want you here with us. I don't take that for granted one bit because it was a pivot point for me. It was a pivot, you know, they, I call it the Oprah aha moment. Mm-hmm. Remember Oprah would have the aha moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was that, it was that. And um, after that memorial, you know, Reggie Workman started to hire me to play with his group, you know, with his daughter, Nyoka. Mm-hmm. And I just learned so much because I'm, you know, still working it out with them pedals down there, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about that. What are some of the, I mean, you talked about the pedal already and about how it was not originally built as a chromatic instrument. What are some of the other challenges to playing your instrument in a modern context? I mean, I, I, I think about even amplifying it and dealing with being on a stage. If you're playing beat-based music, like that's a louder stage. How do you just cut through? Okay. So aside from pedals, yeah, eternal resonance mm-hmm. is a problem. <clears throat> Sustain like crazy. And sound, like you just said. And there are a couple things. So I have a, I have a few harps. Wah, wah. Yeah, I have a few harps. And one is electroacoustic. Even though the electroacoustic is still an acoustic harp, it has a few things in it that help it to resonate less. And even though that's not necessarily a sound that we want to go for, we need it when we're amplified so that things aren't ringing into the ether and then causing feedback nonstop. So this one, um, my harp has a like rubber, this particular model, they weave rubber through the wire strings. Mm. So you won't get, you know, when you're listening to an acoustic harp recording, you hit a low note and it rings and it's just so beautiful and resonant. You're not going to get that on this because we need it to go away. <laughs> we need it to go away sooner than later. So that's one thing that helps also having a pickup on each string wow. as opposed to just the pickup on the board that also helps to uh, focus the amplification. Now, however, when I'm on the road, I can't get this. I have to deal with what I'm given a lot of the time. So I'm actually, it's funny. I just, I just emailed the band like, Hey, we're going to have to rehearse, not to rehearse music, but we we're about to go on tour next week. And it hit me. I'm like, oh, we don't have any days off. My finger is going to be bloody by night two. We're going to have to figure out a whole new way. We're going to just experiment and try to like change everything that we're doing to accommodate the harp. I never want to ask someone to play less because you tell someone to play less, the intensity goes. So I don't want to lose the intensity, but then I also don't want it to be so loud that I'm playing so loud that I can't, because I can't hear I'm playing so loud that I'm like losing any kind of dynamic range because I'm just trying to hear. So I don't have a concrete answer for you because this has been the lifelong struggle when I don't have my electric instrument with me. It's a work in progress. Um, So it sounds like the the instrument is well-suited for the recording projects that you've been doing, but that actually there's no solution about how to do it live yet. This has not been... Solved. You're right. But you know what? Also, it's really made. So we just we just did a, um, a house concert acoustic. Yeah. And I was like, I put a story up like y'all stay coming for me. The band mm-hmm. y'all stay coming for me. You want to turn the bass all the way up and whatnot. All the symbols. But playing 
an acoustic concert forces everyone to use these ears that God gave us. Oh my gosh, what a thought. And then everything sounds amazing. No one's overplaying, but then but when it, when it goes up, it goes up. And then when it comes down, it comes down. What a thought. But even in recording settings, the, res- the resonance can be a problem, by yeah, the way. So yeah. at least you can edit it or I can cut and say, you know what, let's do this separate. Let's punch yeah. these because of the resonance. But also there's something that we do, harpists called muffling, and it's just taking your hands and stopping the sound on the strings. Yeah. But I think that ideally the harp is made to be played live. I didn't realize that you're picking up instruments at every venue. Like you don't travel with your own harp. Harp du jour. Are they very different from place to place? Yeah. You know, I try to get them. I'm not picky because I understand it's not easy to get a harp on the road. Um, so, you know, I request the models that I own mm-hmm. first and and the brands just because I'm familiar with the spacing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they were made differently in different years. So I don't go as specific as to be, OK, made after 2007. You know, I don't do that. I just basically put brand and then I put like three models of each. So at least I know I'll end up with something. And they haven't developed a collapsible. It's not, I don't know enough about the way the thing is built. There's not a way to collapse it in the way, for example, bass players have developed this way to remove the neck of a bass. The neck. Yeah. No, this is strings from top to bottom. Do you have to replace harp strings? Yeah. If they break. It's not like you're doing it once a year or whatever, because they... They wear out. Oh, well, for the health of the harp, you are supposed to change the full set of strings every year. But that costs a lot of money. So unless you just roll in and don't have time and resources like that, I don't fully change. So what a lot of people will do, they'll change like their wires every year Mm -hmm. because that'll actually make a big difference. Do you see young black girls playing this instrument more now I mean, have you seen it? Do you think maybe you're having an influence on the next generations of people playing this instrument and who they are, what they look like, where they're coming from? Yeah. Sometimes when I think about that, it makes me feel old. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I, I see it way more now than before. For sure. No question. And I don't take that for granted. So like you think about when... Alice Coltrane and Dorothy Ashby were doing what they were doing. We're talking like the 60s, right? Dorothy Ashby started in the 50s and and into the 60s and into the 70s. It wasn't easy. It was like this trifecta. You're a woman in jazz. That's a strike. You play the harp in jazz. That's a strike. And then you're like, you play the harp and you're black. That's a strike. Like it's 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 just like the tri- a trifecta. And there are, for every harpist that you know of that's black from that time, hmm. there are harpists that you'll never know. What about men playing harp? I mean, is it seems like it's much maybe I'm wrong, but it wasn't it, it wasn't a no, thing. it wasn't you're right, but it wasn't always this way. I think that so I call them our harp forefathers, Marcel Grangini and Carlos Salzedo, who you may have heard of Salzedo because in that in that interview where uh I forgot who it was, asked John Coltrane, like, who are your greatest influences right now? And one of them he named was Carlos Salzedo. Mm. So Grangini and Salzedo were two French harpists who came over here to the States and they really taught like 
tribes and tribes of little girls. I don't know why hmm. over here. I don't, maybe it was us, meaning Americans. Maybe it was an American thing where they just want their little girls to play. But I think it wasn't until then that it became uh, uh-huh. a whole girl fest. Because if you look back into history, the men, men were in orchestras. Yeah. It's very seldom that you even saw some orchestras didn't allow women. Um, and, and also for a woman to have a career. And I think that's a big part of it. Women didn't have careers. Yeah. So they didn't they didn't work. So you saw men playing harp until this point where they had all these classes of young girls playing harps. And that's who became our teachers and our teachers teachers today. So, yes. Now men are the minority. There, there are a lot, of, like not a lot, but there are plenty male harpists. Yeah, yeah. there are plenty, but um, you do see more women today. It has a kind of a feminine reputation, I guess, to me in some way, like or association. Only now, but think about it. Just like the cello, it's not the most ladylike instrument on planet Earth, right? It's not. Put some pants on. You got to sit there, and the thing is between your legs. It's definitely not made for women. Yeah. <laughs> but here we are. Right. But that's interesting, right? The way these instruments t- took on their own, like, <clears throat> whatever associations in America. Like, th- that's part of the American contribution to the story of these instruments. Yeah. I mean, that's what that and that's coming from me. Like, I'm just looking at it like, wow, this kind of happened yeah. over here, you know? I mean, another thing that happened over here is that it got woven into pop music, right? Like, you know, I mean, I've heard you talk about like the hearing Stevie or hearing records and go, like, oh, there's harp on pop records. There's harp everywhere. Let's talk about some of the guests on this record. We're going to bring it back all the way around because even though we started out by talking about Dorothy Ashby, you also have these wonderful contemporary artists. You have Michelle and Cello and Pete Rock and Maybe talk about how you how that happened and why those people are on this record. In terms of the special guests, the featured guests, it was yeah. really, really important for me to work with folks who shared the special kinship with Dorothy Ashby's music. So that was my whole point when I thought about if I'm going to do some cool stuff, some yeah. cool music you haven't heard before of Dorothy Ashby's, who do I want to work with? The first person to come to mind is Pete Rock. I'm like, now can I convince him to do it? That's a whole different thing. But he was my first choice. You know, Pete Rock. That's a whole different thing. I'm like, that's, that, that's Pete Rock. Who do I want to work with? You know, Pete Rock. I remember at some point a couple of years back, I remember Michelle and Cello saying on Instagram how much she loved Dorothy Ashby. And I didn't forget that. And so I went for it. I went for it. You shoot your shot, shoot your shot. And same thing with Ninth Wonder. I knew that he had sampled her, her work. So really, I just really wanted folks to have a connection with her. The wild card in terms of Dorothy Ashby for this record was Moo Fresh, title track, Brand New Life.
Hulu Fresh came about because I asked Salam Remy, who I also know loves Dorothy Ashby. I said, you know, I'm working on this record. We recorded this track. This is the one that no words had to be spoken. It just came out the way it was supposed to come out because I guess God said so. And I said, I need a voice that's soulful, but then also smooth. Like we'll do like some smooth backgrounds. And who? And he said, Mumu Fresh. And I knew of her stuff, mostly rapping. And he goes, oh, no, 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 call her. And when, when she sent the bounce back, when I tell you, I was just overwhelmed because it's like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and, and, you know, we texted briefly and she said, you know, she had just lost her little brother. And she said, I, I thought about my little brother when I wrote these. And I was just like, dude, mm. dude, stop it now. Just stop. This is ridiculous. Yeah, it's an interesting thing as an instrumentalist, right, to work with singers because like there's so much there's so much room for them to to do what they want and you want to give So for Dust, the track for Michelle and Cello, you, you don't want to tell somebody what to do. But I did send her scratch vocals of me horribly getting through it just so that she could hear how the melody fit. But I didn't want her to, please don't copy me because I sound terrible. The last thing I wanted to do was to say, hey, Salam, could you tell her to do this? You have to trust the people. I feel like we get the best results when people can be themselves. There was the door to which I found no key. There was the veil to which I could not see. Some little talk a while of me and thee. There was no me and thee. I make the most of what we had to spend. Before we do into thus descend. Yeah, but that's a big teaching. I mean, I think maybe that was passed along to you and now you're passing it along in your work too, right? Because that's very hard to come to that conclusion to let people be themselves and to like give them the space to do it. It is because it's risky. <laughs> it's risky too. Well, Brandy, thank you for taking the risk with me today to tell some of your story here. It's really such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm a fan and I'm so excited for all your successes. And I'm frankly amazed that you have to go pick up would you call it harp du jour on the road? I, I I had no idea that that was part of your process. So good luck on the tour. Yeah, so much fun. There she was, my friends, Brandy Younger. Great talk, harp du jour, taking the risk. I loved it. I'll be back in your headspace again before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.